Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Please have a seat, and we are going to be back in Mark chapter 1, as we have been for the last little while here during Epiphany, as we look at the early events of Jesus' ministry to show how Jesus reveals who God is uh, and what God is about and what the implications of that are for us as well. So today, we catch up with Jesus as he teaches in the city of Capernaum. So Mark chapter 1, verse 21. It says this, and they went into Capernaum and immediately, remember this is Mark, we talked about this last week, last couple of weeks, Mark is always talking about immediately. Things happen right now. There's no waiting in between. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So this word is what we're going to focus on today, authority. What does Jesus reveal about who God is with regard to authority and what authority God has and Jesus has? Um, And what implications does that have for us as human beings with how we interact with, uh, with authority as well, both godly authority and worldly authority as well? What does that look like for us? So if authority... Authority is legitimized power, okay? So power is, is, um, is the ability to influence or to even impart will um, on a situation or upon people as well. And authority is, is a legitimized power. So structures and or positions that grant that kind of power, authority, all right? So the scribes that are mentioned here, they were experts in the law of Moses. They would, they would teach the scriptures, but they mostly taught from what was called the Mishnah, which, was the, which is the oral tradition of commentary about the law of Moses. So in other words, when the, when the scribes would teach, they would say, here's the scripture. Now, let me tell you what others have said about the scripture. Jesus, however, they're amazed at his teaching because he teaches as one with authority, not like the scribes. Because what we see when Jesus is teaching, now remember, Mark immediately, right? He, he doesn't go into all of Jesus' teaching. He's just moving us from one event to another. Books like Matthew, however, teach, show, uh, show great discourses from Jesus. And Jesus oftentimes started his discourses of teaching by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, right? Rather than, here's what other people have said about this. I'm saying this. And so with the power uh, and the authority that he is claiming, he is, he is, he astonishes them because he's revealing himself as one with firsthand knowledge of the scripture. He wrote it. It's about him. And he's saying, Look, here I am. I'm God in your midst, speaking my own words to you. Uh, And so, therefore, you can believe them and really should follow the application of these things as well. But this authority doesn't just 
uh, doesn't just come from his teaching of truth. That's part of it. But as the story continues, we see that his authority moves into a place of significant action as well. Verse 23, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. So a a man possessed by a demon came into the synagogue. Uh, just like a church, just like this, right? Walks in uh, and he cried out. So he walks in and he yells. Perhaps Jesus is still teaching at the time. He walks in and he yells, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Okay, so our translations say, Be silent. Jesus is actually, in the original language, is a little aggressive in this. Be silent sounds very formal, right? Silence, right? It sounds, oh, that was a very nice way to say be quiet. But he's a little more crass. Like Jesus is talking to a demon, and he goes, shut up, right? You wake up when the God of the universe tells you to shut up, right? Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and Mary's in the back like, Mm-mm, we don't use that word, right? That, uh, uh, that he, he, commands, he commands the demon to stop speaking and to come out of this guy. The guy thrashes around a little bit, lets out a, lets out a scream. The, the, the demon listens and leaves. Um, and verse 27, they were all amazed. And so they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. His authority is not just conceptual, but practical and actual. And this demon knows the power that he has, but also this legitimized power. I know who you are, position the Holy One of God, right? He has a legitimized power that is authority as the Holy One of God. So where we're going to root ourselves in, in, in peeling back and understanding of authority this morning is to remember that Jesus is both God and man. So he's revealing to us God's authority, but also modeling for us our relationship to authority as human beings, okay? And and how we view and interact with power and authority are profoundly important in our lives. One, God's authority. J.D. preached last week on the kingdom of God and the importance of the kingdom of God. You can go listen to that online again. And so, yes, God's authority and our interaction with him. But what about also, what about parents and kids? What about government? What about church leadership? What about boss-employee relationships? Jesus helps us navigate these relationships as, as well. You see, today in, in Western culture, we can be very suspicious of authority. And some of that suspicion is good and proper because we have seen authority and power used to manipulate so some of that suspicion is, is, is right. We've seen ungodly authority and, and been hurt by it ourselves and seen it hurt others in significant ways. We also have to acknowledge, though, that some of our suspicion of authority is actually due to our own sin and desire for control in our own lives. There's a, that's where we start meddling. 
a little bit more, right? Uh, in America, we talk a lot about freedom. It's one of our founding principles. And that's a good thing. Freedom is good. Liberty is good. This idea, though, is sometimes taken to ex- this extreme of thinking that freedom is freedom from all authority. The problem is, is that it's impossible to not be under authority. If it's not an external authority, then we become our own authority. We grant sovereignty or authority to ourselves. It's only the self that can decide what is best for the self. No government, no institution, no familial systems. Nothing has authority over me, even to the point that now, even the biology of my own physical body cannot limit who I am or how I identify myself. I truly am a sovereign self. So whether that is in transgender debates or in the sovereign citizen movement or in the rise of the angry suburban mom culture, uh, outrage culture, cancel culture, these are all affected by our understanding of power and authority and our relationship with others. So if we grant ourselves autonomous authority, we make ourselves a functional God and we make bad gods. No one wants us in charge of the universe. No one would vote for us for that role. So if we become autonomous individuals with our own sovereignty, we, we try to transcend the power of God, but then also society itself cannot function because if we're all autonomous individuals who make up our own standards of morality and truth, we can't function with one another. And God's plan, and his perfect plan, is a people who know him and flourish. All right, so Jesus has come to give us clarity on these things as well, by his teaching and his example. So here's, here's where we'll, we'll really begin diving into our understanding of authority. As we have already stated, Christians begin an understanding of authority with God. God is king. God is the ultimate authority. He's the creator of all things. He holds all things together. He is the one who brought the harmony in the garden. He is the one that will redeem all things in the end. The ultimate solution to all of the world's problems, from climate issues to wars to sickness to death itself, is when all things will be restored under the rightful rule and authority of God himself. That's what we long for. This is, in fact, why we worship on Sundays, because it is, uh, even the act of worship is rebellion against any other forms of improper authority. When we place God in his rightful place as deserved of our praise. You see, because he's the only one who is the righteous king. He's the only one who is the hope of the world. He's the only one who can straighten out what is crooked. And with all of that power and authority, all of the authority on heaven and earth throughout all of the universe, he's good. And he's worthy of our praise. Worship itself is an act of rebellion against authorities that would lead to destruction. So if Christians begin with an understanding of an authority of God, then a fundamental Christian perspective on authority is that authority is not in itself a bad thing. Okay? Now, authority existed before the fall and will last into the eschaton. And what I mean by that is, before Genesis chapter 3, where sin entered into the world, authority existed. And then when we read the book of Revelation, the other end of the story, we see Jesus sitting on a 
throne, right? a symbol of authority. And so authority itself is not, is not a bad thing. Yes, authority has been twisted, misused in many ways, and we're going to get to that. But authority itself is not a fund- fundamentally bad thing. Jesus was under authority. He says this in John 12, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. In fact, it is Christ's obedience that leads to our redemption. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, It is by one man's disobedience that many were made sinners. That's Adam. Think Adam, the rule and authority of God. You can eat any of any tree. Not this one though, right? Uh, And so his disobedience made all of us sinners. But Paul says, so also by one man's obedience, Christ, the many will be made righteous. Christ's obedience, when we think of why did Christ die on the cross, we go, well, he loved us. Yes, but, be, but first, he loved God and was obedient to God. That's why he was on the cross. And obedience to God's love means that he can truly and fully love us. We're redeemed by Christ's obedience to the authority of God. We see this as Jesus models for us, even our own interaction as people, because he's fully God and fully man. He's modeling for us our interaction with God's authority in the garden in Luke chapter 22, the garden of Gethsemane, before he's arrested and and crucified. He says, he prays, take this cup from me, Father, but not my will, but yours be done. He's showing us that we are to submit and come under the authority of God, the opposite of what Adam did. And so therefore, the results are the opposite of what Adam did. Jesus is actually showing us here that authority is not only a good thing, it is essential to human flourishing. True human flourishing does not come from total and complete freedom. That's the lie of Satan that he used to manipulate Adam and Eve. God is restricting you. He's telling you there are things you can't do. So what is he trying to hold back from you? There's something greater, and and, and God is trying to keep that from you. The only way for you to find your true fulfillment is to be like him and to know all things, including sin and evil and death and conflict. Satan manipulated them with the lie that says freedom is do anything you want and be your own God, that that is true freedom, but that leads to death. True flourishing is to be constrained by obedience to only the things that bring life and joy and blessing. We're not going to go back through Galatians chapter 5. We spent a lot of time there um, at the end of last year, but I will mention again things that we talked about in depth. Galatians 5, Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, but don't use your freedom as an excuse for sin. So clearly, freedom doesn't mean do anything you want. It means you are now set free from the chains of sin uh, and the implications of sin, which are evil and sin and brokenness and death. 
you've been set free from those things in order to be able to be chained to life and righteousness and the things that righteousness bring about of harmony and joy and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good, all those things that we talked about a lot this fall. He says it this way in Romans chapter 6. He says that you used to be a slave of sin and have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. He doesn't say, you've become free with no master. He says, now you've been set free to be a slave to the good things of God. We want to be chained to the good things into the things of blessing, into the things of flourishing. And when there's that part of our heart that says, no, what freedom is, is no matter what I'm chained to, there's no chains. That is the sin of the garden. Conversion, repentance, baptism, from being not a Christian to becoming a Christian is changing our obedience. There's an authority issue at work here. Whereas we were once slaves to sin, we are now slaves to Christ. And where we were once slaves to the destruction of sin, we are now slaves to the eternal life of Christ. We die to self to come under the authority of Christ and his kingdom. And the primary sin of mankind is to say, no, that's not true life. Only my being my own God with my own sovereignty is what will lead to my flourishing. It's been the original sin from Genesis chapter 3 that we still live into today. Because this simply leads to vying for power and trying to gain control over every aspect of your life. How's that control going for you? We're deeply anxious people, constantly afraid, because we're trying to have our own authority and our own control, and we realize the futility of it because we are not God. So Jesus reveals that being under authority is a gift. Wouldn't it be such a relief to not be responsible for every single aspect of your life and for those around you and how everything will turn out? What if someone else was sovereign? So Jesus was under authority, but Jesus also had authority. Jesus shows his authority in both offense and defense, right? So on offense, uh, he's teaching the truth. He is opening the scripture. He is teaching the, the, the reality of how things actually are that lead to freedom and, and, and correcting false ways of thinking that lead to death. The picture of Jesus in Revelation, before he's seated comfortably on his throne, he's on a horse with a sword uh, going after the enemies of God and defeating them. Satan, sin, and death. Defeated by Jesus, the warrior king. Right? There's, there's, a, there's an authority that is in offense. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. As we often remind ourselves in here, the gates of hell are not an offensive structure. They're a defensive structure. And so Jesus is leading the, the church in the storming of the very gates of hell that will not prevail against the church. Right? So you see this authority. You also see in Psalm chapter 20 or Psalm 23 that it pictures him as a good shepherd, that he doesn't just defend against wolves. He also leads to green pastures and to still waters. And it says he has a rod and a staff. Those are signs of authority, and they comfort us. Right? So, so Jesus shows his, uh, his 
offensive authority. Also in defense, where he opposes those things that bring destruction to his people. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth, the demon said? Have you come to destroy us? And Jesus cast him out. Get out of here. You will no longer harm my people. There's a defense in, in authority. Okay, so Jesus is under authority. Jesus has authority. And one of our primary points, Jesus is both God and man. So he reveals the authority of God and models for us proper interactions with authority. So if we've established at this point that we have come to an agreement that God is the perfect authority, that we must trust ourselves to him and his sovereignty, then we also have to ask about how do we as Christians interact with authority in this world. If authority in itself is not bad, we must reject any type of popular thinking or critical theory that reduces all power and authority as being only oppressors and those who are oppressed. Jesus was both under authority and he possessed authority, but he was neither an oppressor nor was he oppressed. This is the type of authority, true godly authority that we long for in the world. True godly authority is a gift to those who are under it, and having authority should be seen as a responsibility to reflect the character of God. So here's one of the implications of this for us as Christians. Christians should not be ashamed to have authority. God established human authority before the fall. He put Adam in the garden, told him, you're going to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. He's the co-regent of the garden, of creation. In fact, he brings all of the animals that God created, but he brings them to Adam to have Adam name them. You have to have authority to name something. You You don't just get to name something else. I don't get to say to Alan, you are no longer Alan. You are now Bill. I, I don't have the authority to do that. Like his mom and dad named him Alan. They had the authority. I can't name him unless I have that authority. Now, I've called him other names before, um, <laughs> but they are, they're not proper and legal changes, right? Uh, that, uh, uh, that we have to have authority to name something. And so we see God giving Adam the authority here, authority from God to human to name things. So, so, Romans 13 tells us that there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. All of us have authority in varying degrees and in different spheres of our lives. Parents, teachers, employers, politicians, soldiers, spouses, employees, lawyers, presidents of school clubs, the front man of your garage band, right? Like that, that they have a particular authority in particular places. Even in your friend circles, there are, uh, there are unofficial authority structures. Even homeless communities have them, right? There is there, we all, in various spheres of our life, have different degrees of authority. So this is another implication here, then. When we have authority as Christians, we should use that authority in a way that echoes God's use of authority. Not to build up ourselves and to manipulate or exert improper control, but for the flourishing of humanity and the glory of God. That's what he uses his authority for. When we are in places of authority, to whatever degree we're in those positions, that's what we should use our authority for. For the flourishing of humanity and the glory of God. Christians see authority differently from the world. 
Matthew 20, Jesus gathers all his disciples together, uh, and he says this, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's not saying here, oh, you won't have any authority. In other places, he clearly gives them authority. Jesus talks about how all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. right? So he's not saying you won't have authority. What he's saying is the Gentiles see the fact that you have a position of authority makes you a great one. He's saying it's not the position or the title that you have. It's how you use that authority that echoes God's use of authority. And he says, watch me. I came, I'm God himself, who's come in the form of someone with authority in your midst, and I have come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so therefore, it's not authority that's bad. You're going to have authority, but that's what you use it for too. To be a chief servant, to give your life for the benefit of others. As Christians, when we have authority, we should strive for the use of that authority that echoes God's example, the flourishing of mankind, the glory of God. Or as William Wallace said, you think that the people of this country exist to provide you with position. I think your position exists to provide these people with freedom, and I go to make sure they have it. It's turning the authority structures upside down. And so as a Christian, for those of you who are Christians in this room, use your authority in offense to lead to flourishing. Go be an expert in your field so others may benefit from your learning. Make advancements in science and technology and political policy. If, if you're in education, shape minds and character and relationships. If you're a lawyer, fight for justice for the weak. If you're a contractor, only do solid, correct work at fair prices. If you're in janitorial work, then use your authority to serve others through beautification and stewardship and hospitality. If you are a parent, then disciple and discipline your kids. Reflect the authority of God to pursue the purposes of God not my will, but yours be done. In whatever sphere of life, you have authority in offense and in defense. As Christians, we should use our authority in defense to bring healing and to protect from those things that wish to destroy the people of God. God constantly pleads the case of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the bruised reed, the smoldering wick. These people should find safety under individuals and institutions that are marked with the authority of the name Christian because they can find refuge under the strength of the wings of the church. I have swords on the wall of my office. If you ever come in, there's swords hanging out there. Another pastor came in one time. He's like, do you feel like that that creates a pastoral environment? <laughs> and I said, yes, I do. And I'll tell you why. It's this, it's this quote from, from Faramir, captain of Gondor. Not the milk toast one from the movies. I'm talking about the legit one from the books, right? He says this. He says, I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness or the the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only what they defend. For him, it's Gondor. For us, it's the church. 
here's an example of authority from, from my own personal life. I took vows as a priest. Vows. Vows are big things. To be a messenger, a steward, and a watchman of the church. As your pastor, I devote my life to the commands of Scripture that command leaders to guard the good deposit of truth. 2 Timothy 1.4 or Jude 1, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, to lay down my life for the flourishing of our church. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, I exhort the elders among you to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. How can we heed these words in all of our lives? Where are we shepherds who must lead and defend? So just as Christians should not be ashamed to have authority, Christians should also not be afraid to submit to authority. This is a harder one for us. Remember, Jesus did this. Jesus had authority, and he submitted to authority. Submission is a difficult word, and it can arouse a lot of emotion because it has oftentimes been used to, to excuse abuse. And that is not what, the, what a godly understanding of submission is. It's not its intent. We should, as Christians, properly submit when the aim of authority echoes that of God for human flourishing. Jesus pushed back against the Pharisees, right? They were people in authority. The apostles did not listen when they were told that they couldn't go and spread the gospel. In fact, they escaped from jail. There's a proper time for civil disobedience and speaking the truth to power and even protest. There's lots of theological study spent in these areas. Christians should be the accountability for the leaders of the world because we are the moral compass of the world because we know the truth of what actually brings flourishing that God lays out in his scripture. But, I think we're okay with that. But, in the limited time we have this morning, I want to challenge us with this. All of us, no matter what position or degree of authority we have, before we default to outrage, protest, suspicion, calling out others in authority, we must first ask ourselves, who are we in submission to? Before we pick up our sword, who points it? Who has proper authority over us? Where is our accountability? Who can, keep, who can keep us in check or correct us? What is our standard for ethical behavior? Who do we take counsel from? Who can speak authoritatively into our lives? Are we students of the truth of God and the scripture so we know that we are enforcing a proper standard and not our own desires upon the world? We need this or else our raging against authority is simply trying to put us in a position of domineering others. We need to be a part of something greater, God's righteousness. If we are going to lead well, to influence well, we need to first follow well. Jesus did. He calls his disciples to it as well. We first follow God and we do so in the accountability of community within the church. For me, I love having a bishop. I love having someone who carries a big stick, um, who, uh, who can discipline me and correct me, who, 
who by the vows that I've taken first to follow God and then second to submit to my bishop, I have someone who can support me with godly authority. I love having a vestry, and in particular the senior and junior lay leaders who meet with me regularly to both correct me and encourage me. I love being a part of a senior staff where the four of us meet weekly, and I ask them to speak into my life. I love having a wife to whom I am in mutual submission. Do you know why I love all of these things? Because for my particular role as priest and pastor in a position of authority, this verse terrifies me. You ready? Hebrews 13, verse 17. Paul commands the church this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This verse terrifies me. Because it says that as a church leader, as a pastor, I am keeping watch over the souls of the people in my church. It also tells me that I'm going to have to give an account before Christ about how I have been a good steward in that process. That's too much for me. I'm sinful and fallible. I'm opening the word of God to tell people what God is saying. I'm shepherding the flock of God. I'm presiding at his table. Who am I for such things? Lord, have mercy. I have to be a man of prayer to even approach this task. And I need to be in submission to others in order to lead well. And I want to do this with joy in a way that is advantageous for you and the authority of others over me as a gift is a gift to me as I lead and have authority over others. How is this true in your life as well? In your family, in your work, in your engagement in politics? Can we take this same approach as parents, as employers, as workers? We need the grace of Jesus, the guidance of his Holy Spirit, and the accountability of the church community if we are to hope that our use of authority will bring about the results God intended for authority, the flourishing of humanity and the glory of God. One last thing we have to address in all of this, though, is that I know everyone in this room has been wounded by abusive and fallible leadership. All of us have. Every single one, without exceptions, to varying degrees. What do we do with that? If if authority in itself is not bad, and and we're under authority, and we're supposed to have authority, and so one, that should make us afraid if we're people of authority, how, how we could actually harm other people with that authority, that should make us afraid. But also, how do we trust authority as well? What do we do with the fact that we have been wounded by authority? First, We weep for the sin of this world. We live in a world that is not fully under, in, uh, in, uh, in, in compliance with the will and work of God. And that's why we experience sin. Like that rub right there, you go, oh, what we really need is a king who's perfect in all ways. He's coming. And so right now, we weep for the sin of the world. We rage against the enemies of God and his people, Satan, sin, and death. We groan for the coming of Jesus when all injustice will cease, and he will judge justly all those who presumed authority and used it against his purposes. We groan for that day. 
we also don't let those who have sinned against us further divide us by pushing us into isolation where we live in a place of fear or rebellion against all authority or constant suspicion of all leaders, then we are extremely vulnerable to the sins of our own hearts and to the working of Satan himself. In our act of rebellion against authorities, powers, and principalities that are not of God, we don't allow them to isolate us that way. And we press into the church and into relationship with one another. And we find healing from the Father who has ultimate authority and is in the business of our health and thriving. We find safety in trusting godly leadership of which I hope you find much here at Redeemer. Because authority is meant to help heal and to protect. And then, and this is my challenge for us today, friends. And then, as the church, we redeem authority. We follow the example set by Jesus. We lead well. We show the world what authority is meant to be. Self-sacrificing for the service and blessing of others. Intentional in leading to places of health and safety. Defending the weak and the powerless. Be the dad that your father wasn't. Break the cycle. Be the mentor that you never had. Teach our children, mentor our youth, support our college students, house a fellow, disciple men and women, live into your calling, defend the cause of the powerless, reject bitterness and fear, and step into strength and courage in Jesus Christ. And let us redeem authority. We lead well and we follow well. We follow with grace. We pray for our leaders. We want what is best for them as well. We trust that there are leaders out there who truly do long for a pure heart and for your flourishing. And then our charge, I believe, in this church here, I believe that as a church we need to be a center for multiplying these kind of leaders. Let's raise them up. Let's build them from our children to our youth to our curacy programs. And let's raise them up in the character and mission of Christ and send them out into the world so that the redemption that we know here and have in fact named our church after can be spread throughout the world through the influence of godly, paradigm-shifting leaders. Jesus shows us that all authority should reflect the authority sourced in God, that we should trust in him as our king, that we should hold authority well, acting as servants, seeking the flourishing of others, and to be under authority well, properly submitting, having grace, holding to the truth of God. Jesus came to redeem all things, including authority itself. May we be a part of that redemptive work. Pray with me. Lord, this is a difficult subject for us because of how deeply we have been wounded in many ways and how, if we are wise, we fear our own ability um, to hurt others if given the opportunity through authority. And so we need your godly authority to cover us. We need you to cast out those things that are not of you, to guard us from sin, to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. We pray that you would raise us up in whatever level of authority and spheres of influence that we have to be, to be leaders that echo your character and to be followers that do the same. You are redeeming all things, Lord, including authority. 
by the authority that is given to you. Help us to take part in your great and perfect plan. And we long for the day, truly, Lord, when you will come and your throne will be established. And we will all gather around simply to worship you for your goodness. And justice and peace will reign. Lord, haste the day. In your name we pray. Amen.